0: Wonderful. So let's say the blessing for studying Torah together. Baruch ata Adonai Asher b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you source of life who makes us holy with your commandments and has commanded us to engage with the words of Torah. The Torah portion, thank you. The Torah portion this week is Kitisa, and I'm telling you we could easily spend a semester on it one rich section after another it's it's a it's really something so what I thought I'd do is just give you a kind of quick tour just so that you know and then there are two sections that I want to focus on today and uh focus on one briefly, and then the second one at greater length. And I'm again grateful to uh, Rabbi uh, Lord Jonathan Sachs of blessed memory, who I found his teaching so eloquent that I'm gonna actually be sharing it with you today so we can comment on it. Um, But first, uh, first I'll mention that Purim was uh, really a joy. I was really excited that we were able to pull it off on Zoom and make it so, so much fun. Um, and we're already turning our attention to Passover, big time. Um, we're gonna have a uh, we're going to have a virtual Pesach Seder for the community and for anyone who wants to join us um, um, on the second night of Passover, Sunday night, March 28th. So you'll be getting information about that this week, maybe. T- tomorrow um from the congregation Um, and uh i'm excited about it and also along those lines um kim and reggie harris our friends my friends kim and reggie harris are going to be joining us for that seder um and as it happens um the three of us are also doing a concert um a week from saturday night on the 13th uh in preparation for Passover, which you'll get all the information for that. I just wanted you to know. So I'm excited about all of that. Okay. Um, so, it starts, this is all gonna be really quick. It starts with the requirement of a census count and that every in the Torah that everyone of age had to, every male of age in the Torah had to give a half a shekel um, to the maintenance of the Mishkan that's been described in these previous portions. So there's a, there's a census which gets a lot of attention. Then there are um, this, this amazing description of how to make the special aromatic oil that the high priest is going to, that the Kohens are gonna be anointed with, with cinnamon and um, myrrh, and anyone who is into um, this stuff, um, which I'm not, just could teach us so much about the properties of each of these um, um, essences of um, fragrance and um, energy that goes into this. And then a description of a different combination of um, incense that is compounded for burning within the sanctuary. And again, someone with that expertise, we could spend the entire time learning all about the properties of, of this, this amazing um, compound of, uh, that made the incense that they burned. Uh, I can't tell you anything about. It It probably smelled good. It's sort of my level of sensitivity on these issues. Um, Then we're introduced to Bezalel, who is the master craftsman. And I've talked about Bezalel a lot because his name means in God's image. So Bezalel is not just a person. Bezalel is like the, the uh, realization of our potential to take thoughts and manifest them as, be- as beautiful objects. And he and his assistant to are tasked with making everything that God has described to um, Moses. And we'll hear more about him in, in future parshas. And then there's this interesting insertion where the famous passage of Vishamru comes from, about how despite all of this, on Shabbat, you have to stop. You can't even make holy things for the sanctuary on Shabbat. You have to stop, refresh yourselves just like God did at the beginning. And that's a whole, in, that develops into, as some of you know, into the entire body of what is considered work in Jewish law. We're not gonna do that today either. But I had to give you an idea of of, of the the depth of this portion. And then we come to chapter 32, which is the golden calf, the episode of the golden calf. And Moses is up on the mountain. We're going to take a look at this right now. Moses is up on the mountain, getting the 10 commandments, getting the tablets. The people are rebelling below. And uh, the next drama of the next two next chapters is all stems from this, as Moses both has to stem the absolute outbreak of chaos and rebellion in the camp, and then go get God to calm down and promise not to destroy the people. And Moses is an incredible figure in this back and forth of, of maintaining the relationship and the um, both the stability of the social order, which he has to impose violently, uh, then the relationship with the creator who wants nothing to do with these people anymore. They've alienated God completely. And it's an amazing uh, back and forth that culminates in Moses saying to God, look, if you want me to lead this people, I need to understand you better. Please show me your glory. And that leads to the moment when Moses is placed in a crevice, a cleft, in the mountain, and God's glory passes before Moses. And um, then Moses gets the is up there another forty days and forty nights, gets the second set of tablets, comes down the mountain, and he's radiant. Now we're at the end of the portion. He has beams of light, carne or coming off of his countenance so much that people can't look at him he's so radiant and it says he wears a veil when he went among the people which is another like that's amazing um and uh, it's hard to choose where to focus in a portion like this and so I just chose um I chose based on uh what I always do which is What is jumping off the page to me today? So that's, I have two things that I wanna share with you. Um, The first is, well, hold on, I'm gonna share my screen, just a moment, just a moment. Yeah, I'm gonna get, um, this was all over the papers this week. Did you see this statue of Donald Trump? Okay. The CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, which is like where, where Trump supporters go to hang out, uh, happened last week. And somebody produced a golden statue of Trump, which then stood in the lobby. Um, not to belabor it, but the, it, the fact that it was happening during the week when we read about the golden calf um, was just too much. And not only the Jewish press, but everyone uh, who had a relationship with the image of the golden calf couldn't resist. Um, let me show you another one. Uh, Uh, These kinds of cartoons and images are all over the place with people bowing and praying before this quintessential idol. So I don't need to go on a rant about that, but yes, the golden cow of Trump was made in China. It's true. Karen Levine says, quite a paradox that our orthodox co-religionists are such ardent Trump supporters. Yes, it is. And a longer discussion would also bring us into what is idolatry? Right, That's one of the questions that this raised. Uh, first, um, let me... Uh, share the Torah passage with you. Enid, your comment got cut off. Are you writing more? I'm doing it again. Okay. So I'm gonna share my screen and share this passage with you from the Torah. Because again, somehow ripped from the headlines. Enid says, it is not a paradox. They put Israel first. Enid, yes, but the paradox Taryn is associating with is that as students of the Torah, we are told not to worship idols. And uh, we know that nations, worshiping nations above all else is a form of idolatry. So that's what uh, Karen's referring to. If you're going to take the messages of Judaism to heart, then it's paradoxical that you can't see what's right in front of your face. and let's not get too much holier than now, everybody, because um, let's just say we're fallible as well. Uh, no, except for Karen. That's why I, that's why I always like doing things with her. <laughs> okay, let me share the screen with the Torah text um, so that we can read this passage. And, and the reason is, I wanna read it is just from a fantastic, descriptive literary quality. Um, It's marvelous, marvelous storytelling. Here we go. I hope everyone can see that okay. It's chapter 32 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered against Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who shall go before us. For that man, Moses, and I love the language here. He, ze, Moshe, Haish. That man, Moses, who brought us from the land of Egypt. We do not know what happened to him. So right there, they have lost all connection to the transcendent goal that Moses has been uh, as, as in the God of liberation that Moses has been aiming them towards. And they, can, they, have, no, they have no range beyond the thing they can see, right? Uh, the person they count on. The, and Moses never adopts this role, but they treat him that way. I think of it as like object permanence when we talk about the children of Israel. um, Once something's out of their sight, they don't remember that it exists. Uh, Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. This he took from them and cast in a mold. And made it into a golden calf, into a molten calf. And they exclaimed, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron announced, Tomorrow shall be a festival of the Lord. Early next day, the people offered up burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well being. They sat down to eat and drink and then rose to dance. Okay, the Hebrew is means to, can have a bunch of meanings. It means, can mean to dance. It can mean to laugh. So it's an image of revelry, but it's also has sexual overtones to it as well. To play around, to fool around. L'tachek. So, Um, This is what's going on. They're eating and drinking and fooling around. In the kindest sense, it's like the teacher left the classroom and Aaron was sent in to mind the kids and completely failed, right? Totally lost control of the group. That's what's going on, whether you interpret it sexually or otherwise. It's a loss of control. Meanwhile, God's up on the mountain with Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, hurry down. And this is another great line. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted basely. So at this point, God is already disowning them. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They have made themselves a molten calf and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it, saying, this is your God. Oh, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Uh, I'm in chapter 32. What chapter are I in? Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead because I want to read to you what happens when Moses confronts Aaron and the people and that's ahead on verse 19, even though this is all really great stuff. As soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, he became enraged and he hurled the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. that, that profound, famous moment, he took the calf that they had made and burned it. He ground it to powder and strewed it upon the water and made the Israelites drink it. What is that? Uh, Eat your words, a taste of your own medicine. What is this? Uh, You know, it's something. And now Moses says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon? Aaron said, Let not my Lord be enraged. You know that this people is bent on evil. They said to me, make a God to lead us. For that man, Moses, who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So I said, get ready, folks. Whoever has gold, take it off. They gave it to me, and I hurled it into the fire, and out came this calf. All right, here we go again. You know, the Eve made me eat the apple, you know. I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. So what we have here, Aaron gets defended in many ways and can be defended in the Midrash. But for today's purposes, let's just say this is a complete failure of leadership and of responsibility. Moses saw that the people were out of control since Aaron had let them get out of control so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them. So Moses rallies the Levites, his tribe, and they put down the rebellion violently. And then afterwards, when they've quelled the violence, Moses says to them, dedicate yourselves to the Lord this day for each of you has been against son and brother that God may bestow a blessing upon you today. Moses recognizes that the social fabric has been riven by this need, by what he perceived as the need to quell the uprising and restore order. Um, and so he, even after his troops have, co- have, have um, uh, quelled the uprising, he needs his troops to go seek God's forgiveness for their actions. Okay, I'm gonna stop screen sharing for a minute. And I'm gonna read a couple of the comments, which I couldn't see before. Um, Ablai said, can't help but wonder what, if anything, Rabbi Sachs would say about this particular image. Well, just go to his website. It's a wonderful, um, all, his, all his Torah teachings are, um, are archived. They're very um, effectively. That's what I was doing today. I turned to him. Um, and Naomi said, Karen is perfect. We are so lucky. Karen, can we bow down to you? No, she, she won't take it. She's just, no, she won't take it. So um, uh, so Roni says, if I wanted to read it, what book do I take out of the library? Um, Rabbi Sachs's books are called Covenant and Conversation. And there are many volumes. If you want to get a hard copy instead of um, read it online. You can also listen to him. Karen said, hooray for the Levites. Yes, Karen does have a bias. She is Levine. Oh, the Trump image. Oh yeah. Well, we'll we won't know because Rabbi Sachs, unfortunately has passed away. Um, Roni says, seems to me he moved too quickly to violence. Mm -hmm, That bothers a lot of us. And now what I wanna say is I do wanna compare it to the uh, um, uh, sacking of the US Capitol. Here we have a complete failure of leadership and a worshiping of an idol that leads to the breakdown of social order and the eruption, a complete breakdown. So once a leader of a people encounters that state of affairs, what is a leader to do? That is a real question. And theoretically, we can talk about why did Moses, you know, it would be all over the, all over the newspapers and, and TV channels for weeks. Why was, why was the reaction so violent? But we just saw what happened when the nation wasn't ready to maintain its um, institutions, right? And I'm not defending nations as pure and good, and I'm not doing any of that. I'm talking about the breakdown of social order, defecating in the Capitol building, you know, breaking windows, killing people, okay? Think of that as the golden calf. Um, Roni, let me look at your comments in just a moment. Um, and so I, I couldn't, so the first thing I wanted to share with you was I couldn't get the images once I saw, especially once I saw that golden statue of Trump, I couldn't get the images of what happened in the Capitol out of my mind. And all of a sudden I've always condemned Moses and the Levites in my mind. And all of a sudden, because of my immediate experience, I understood what Moses was doing. He had to call out the National Guard. He had to disperse the rioters. He had to restore the sanctity of the space. He had to arrest and punish. He had to, it was too late. And that is the challenge of leadership. Oh, Susan says, what happened in the Capitol seems worse than the Golden Calf." I don't know you had to be there. (laughs) We don't know what's going on here. The people have in the golden calf episode, which is a myth, the people have completely abandoned a relationship with God who just gave them the Torah and liberated them from slavery. And they said, we want a God we can see and we want a God we can make with our own hands. I don't know how you describe a greater breakdown of a collective vision than that. If you know what I'm saying. Um, Ellen Weaver says three thousand people out of two to three million is a very small percentage. Again, I don't know what to do with numbers in the Bible, you know, because they they're not counting, um, they're never counting literally. So I don't know why they come up with. The, w- yeah. Do you want to say something about that, Ellen? Please do. Yeah, it's, um From the movies and descriptions, it's like everyone was doing it. Everyone was up there worshiping and dancing and bowing and whatever the actual numbers, it's still a very small percentage of the people who were actively involved. So I just wanted to That's a good point, because that would be true about most uprisings and most um, chaotic chaos, sowers of chaos. Thank you, Ellen. Yes, that's an excellent point. Um, So that was my, that was the first piece of Torah that I could not take my eyes off of, thinking about what I myself had witnessed in my country, in this unprecedented time. And thinking about what a leader has to do the, t- the incredibly difficult choices, um, Paul says, Roni says, that having to call in National Guard as a perspective, what if Moses had not condemned idolatry and said, yes, as Moses wasn't there, this stood in my stead. So now I am here. Let's pay attention to my words. Roni, uh, that is a very good point. It appears from the nature of the story that that wasn't an option. Just as once the mob has been released on the Capitol, talking them down is no longer an option. That's what it appears to me. Um, All those steps should have and could have been taken before that. Now, Moses's absence is striking. And he could be critiqued for being gone for so long. On the other hand, he left his brother in charge. So I don't think we should trash Moses entirely. Perhaps he assumed that his brother, who had already been invested as high priest, well, he hadn't been invested yet, but he was, um, you know, he had led the people out of Egypt with Moses, was going to be able to handle the situation. So uh, there are, I just want to say, there are no wrong answers to these questions every perspective can be examined where was Moses culpable where was God culpable what's going on and all I'm sharing with you today is what jumped off the page at me in terms of comparing my recent experience to reading the portion because the Torah is not about perfect people it's not a description of enlightenment it's a description of how human beings behave along with our striving for a greater awareness, right? So that's why it's about us. It's why I like reading the Torah. It's not trying to be holier than me. (laughs) It's in fact, describing us. And so um, uh, let's see. Rabbi, the mob at the Capitol is not the same as the group of Israelites is homogeneous whereas at the Capitol, they were foes and antagonists. But Ronnie, again, you're making an assumption about the story. How do we know who the perpetrators of the golden calf were? Who the the fetchers were, who the complainers were? Maybe they were all kinds of sects of rebels who found common cause momentarily. So again, I I take issue with the generalizations you're assuming about the text. The text doesn't tell us, so we don't know. Charlotte said, Okay, Paul Bloom said, Moses was late in returning, people freaking out like children without their parents and punishment by death, not so unusual in those times. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm talking about January 6th. It's like people died. There was, someone got shot trying to climb through a window. It's like, it ain't ancient times. It's now. That's my point. Um, Charlotte says, good to remember too, when you think about what it will take to tamp down the people who have lost their minds, they are not the majority. But the question always is, once stopped in action, what do we do next? How do we heal that kind of craziness? This is the dilemma that we face right now that I do not know the solution to, right? Rashi said, once the destroyer is let loose in the land, innocent and guilty, both suffer, right? Human beings, we like to think that we're transcendent, but all you have to do is look at the history of the last hundred years to know that if we don't maintain the veneer of civilization, of social order, of, of, now it can be done with autocracy and cruelty, or it can be done with with a semblance of democracy, right? But if we don't, and the destroyer gets loose, especially if the destroyer gets into the halls of power and leadership, then civilization crumbles. And that's now, that's not just then. So I am today, I am defending Moses's actions. That's what I'm doing today. Even though last year, if you talk to me, I might've condemned it, okay? That's Torah. All right, Um, thank you, Charlotte. I wish I knew the answer. I'm quite worried. Um, in Aaron's defense, didn't he try delaying tactic of asking people to give their most precious possession, gold, and hope they would reconsider? That's the Midrash. The Midrash works hard to defend Aaron as doing everything he could as delaying tactics. And maybe he did, but then why does he completely abdicate responsibility when Moses talks to him? So yes, the Midrash defends Aaron, and I could defend Aaron. And today I'm not. Um, uh, Is it a midrash that they had miscounted how many days he said he would be gone? It was only a day late. That's also a midrash, yeah. Um, We don't know when the Israelites lost their marbles. Was he gone for one day? We don't know. But God has to send Moses back down. So Karen says, Maybe it was the Egyptians who had left with the Israelites who spread fake news that took hold as the Israelites were vulnerable. Now we're talking. So remember, uh, it says when they left Egypt, a whole bunch of something called Erev Rav, including Egyptians, people were like, wow, we're following this guy. And they got the hell out of ruined Egypt. And so there were theories that the, um, there were theories that, uh, Hi, can't talk now. Um, there, are, there are theories that um, the rabble were folks who hadn't been initiated into this relationship with God. Could be. Um, uh, Enid says, and they did not have a season of Congress, session of Congress today because violence was threatened. Good point. We are in, we are in the soup, everybody. Diane says, as we know, history is written by the winners. If the rebels had prevailed and all the synagogues included a golden calf on the bima, along with the quite different Torah, we would be pleased and think it right. Uh, Maybe you would be, Diane, I'm not sure. I don't think there's a moral equivalency here. Um, The Torah, we we were the winners in this story, so we condemn the golden calf story. Okay, that's good and challenging. I'll let it stand, Um, but I'm not a moral relativist anymore. And I think worshiping the God who who is on the side of the slaves and against the side of tyranny is not a moral equivalence. So I do disagree. Uh, This reminds me a bit of what's happening in Germany with the government considering condemning or even outlawing the AFD party because they are trying to protect their democracy and constitution from extremists. They are drawing a line the way Moses did. Uh, If you've read that story about Germany, they are considering outlawing one of the extremist parties who's made it into parliament. Guess who's right? Who's wrong? Well, I think we have enough sense to know. Uh, Roni says, Diana, it is those who have the power who tell the story. We are interested in the untold story. Good, then what I encourage you to do, that's what Midrash is, write the story from the perspective of the folks who wanted a golden calf and do it with generosity and with, I think we could do that. I still think they're wrong, but I'd listen to their story. Um, Rob's example about Germany is very much what we were dealing with in our own Congress. While we only have two parties, what do we do with the members who perpetuate the big lie and promote conspiracy theories in the halls of power? Uh, wasn't the sound of celebration in the camp actually a nervous laughter, people just very scared. The word is anot. And anot means um, singing, um, the tzachek, the sounds of celebration. So again, Paul, you're reading, those meanings might be accurate, but they're not the only meaning. Part of the issue of translating across 3000 years is precisely that. We don't know what they meant exactly. And we have the license to have this animated conversation about this dramatic episode. So you're all doing great. Now I want to turn our attention. So again, I'm going to say it one more time. That's what drew my attention today. Can you see why? That's what Torah is for. And it can initiate. And I hope we're all back in person for a free, free ranging conversation about this in the not too distant future, uh, rather than the limitations of this form. So thanks everyone for your comments. Now I want to spend the rest of our class on a totally different point um, that uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs raises in one of his, um, one of his um, commentaries, which I'm gonna share with you on the screen, uh, but let me just introduce it. You know the phrase, the Israelites are a stiff-necked people, right? That was one of our great descriptives in the Torah, that we're stiff-necked. And being of stiff neck is not considered a good thing in the Torah. Well, where that comes from is this portion. It gets mentioned four times that we are stiff-necked. It only gets mentioned two other times in Deuteronomy when this is being recounted. Um, So if a phrase gets repeated over and over in a passage, it's calling for our attention. And so Rabbi Sex gave it his attention in this essay and I found it to be so, I found it very moving. And so I want to share it with you on the screen right now. moment, please. My little fingers. And let me put this down here so I can, there we go. Now I could see all my little windows. Now, is that visible to everybody? Looks pretty good. Okay, good. I'm reading his words. And I'll skip a little bit here and there. Um, It is a moment of the very highest drama. The Israelites, a mere 40 days after the greatest revelation in history, have made an idol, a golden calf. God threatens to destroy them. Moses exemplifying to the fullest degree the character of Israel as one who wrestles with God and man. That's the name, what Yisrael means. When Jacob gets the name, it's because you have wrestled with both God and man and have not succumbed. Confronts both in turn. To God, he prays for mercy for the people. Coming down the mountain and facing Israel, he smashes the tablets, symbols of the covenant, he grinds the calf to dust, mixes it with water, and makes the Israelites drink it. He commands the Levites to punish the wrongdoers. Then he reascends the mountain in a prolonged attempt to repair shattered relationship, the shattered relationship between God and the people. God accepts his request and tells Moses to carve two new tablets of stone. At this point, however, Moses makes a strange appeal. Here's the quote. And Moses hurried and knelt to the ground and bowed. And he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, may my Lord go among us because it is a stiff-necked people and forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. The difficulty in this verse is self-evident. Moses cites as a reason for God remaining with the Israelites, the very attribute that God had previously given for wishing to abandon them. Because two chapters earlier, God says, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. How can Moses invoke the people's obstinacy as the very reason for God to maintain his presence among them? What is the meaning of Moses is because, may my Lord go among us because it is a stiff necked people. Before we go further, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Um, and my, my first thought, and I'll keep welcoming your comments in the chat. My first thought is that, um, b- by the way, the Hebrew word because also would be in it would be Davka, especially because they're so stiff-necked, they need you in their midst. We need you. Let's see what uh, the other commentators say. They offer a variety of interpretations. Rashi reads the word ki as if, if they are stiff-necked, then forgive them. Ibn Ezra and Kuni these are two more, these are all medieval commentators. Read it as although, or despite the fact that. Ibn Ezra suggests that we can read it. And Ibn Ezra, these are all medieval, uh, famous medieval commentators. I admit that it is a stiff necked people. Therefore, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. These are straightforward readings, though they assign to the word key a meaning it does not normally have. You know, it's good for you to hear these names because I don't usually quote all the medieval commentators who were doing the exact same thing we're doing today. We looked at the verse and then we debated it um, energetically, right? That's what we've been doing for thousands of years. There is however, another and far more striking line of interpretation that can be traced across the centuries. In the 20th century, it was given expression by Rabbi Yitzhak Nissenbaum. And the argument he attributed to Moses was this. Almighty God, look upon this people with favor, because what is now their greatest vice will one day be their most heroic virtue. They are indeed an obstinate people. But just as now they are stiff-necked in their disobedience, so one day they will be equally stiff-necked in their loyalty. Nations will call on them to assimilate, but they will refuse. Mightier religions will urge them to convert, but they will resist. They will suffer humiliation, persecution, even torture and death because of the name they bear and the faith they profess. But they will stay true to the covenant their ancestors made with them. They will go to their death saying, Amin," I believe. This is a people awesome in its obstinacy. And although now it is their failing, there will be times far into the future when it will be their noblest strength. The fact that Rabbi Nissenbaum lived and died in the Warsaw Ghetto gives added poignancy to his word. It made me think of that general thing that, you know, I'm thinking about my mom. Uh, she was gonna, and always, she was gonna die as she lived you know she the exact qualities of my mom's toughness perseverance determination it made it hard for her to die but she she wasn't the kind to just let go you know it also made me think yes it is often that someone's best attribute is the one down the line that also makes you nuts and so that's all that's exactly what this beautiful passage is about um It made me think also, I'm gonna go on uh, as deep as the valley is as high as the mountain of virtue. Thank you. That um, it makes me think about why it's so important for so many of us contemporary Jews to turn to Buddhism and the idea of radical acceptance. Because that is not the um, baseline of being Jewish, shall we say. And it can be a burden in the wake of um, the unbelievable trauma we've absorbed simply because we were Jewish and our determination and desire to survive and thrive as a people. (sighs) That our stiff necks might need some kneading and some loosening up. So I'm all in favor. I'm all in favor of us Jews um, finding ways to ease our stiff necked nature, but I'm not in favor of us blaming Judaism and abandoning it for that purpose. Here, many centuries earlier, a Midrash made essentially the same point. Okay, this is many centuries earlier than the 20th century. There are three things which are undaunted the dog among beasts, the rooster among birds, and Israel among the nations. Rabbi Isaac ben Radeefa said in the name of Rabbi Ami, You might think that this is a negative attribute, but in fact, it is praiseworthy. For it means either be a Jew or prepare to be hanged. We don't have to parse that last statement. Uh, is it a negative attribute or a praiseworthy one? In our parsha, it's negative. Jews were stiff-necked says Rabbi Amin, in the sense that they were ready to die for their faith. That's what he's talking about. As Gersonides in 14th century Spain said, a stubborn people may be slow to acquire a faith, but once they've done so, they never <laughs> relinquish it. We catch a glimpse of this extraordinary obstinacy in an episode narrated by Josephus. This is in the first century. So the fact that he can bring all these sources together from the 1st, the 5th, the 14th, the 20th, I think we have a pattern here, a pattern. A Josephus, one of the first recorded incidents of mass nonviolent civil disobedience, it took place during the reign of the Roman emperor Caligula, oh, the famous Caligula. He had proposed placing a statue of himself in the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem and had sent the military leader Petronius to carry out the task. A statue of himself in the temple. Hmm, kind of like a golden calf. So how interesting. This is how Josephus describes the encounter between Petronius and the Jewish population at Ptolemaeus. Akko, modern day Akko. Here's Josephus. There came 10,000 Jews to Petronius at Ptolemaeus to offer their petitions to him that he would not compel them to violate the law of their forefathers. But if they said you are wholly resolved to bring the statue and install it, then you must first kill us and then do what you have resolved on. For while we are alive, we cannot permit such things as are forbidden by our law. Then Petronius came to them at Tiberius. Will you then make war with Caesar regardless of his great preparations for war and your own weakness? They replied, we will not by any means make war with Caesar but we will die before we see our laws transgressed. And then they threw themselves down on their faces and stretched out their throats and said that they were ready to be slain. Thus, they continued firm in their resolution and proposed themselves to die willingly rather than see the statue dedicated. Faced with such heroic defiance on so large a scale, Petronius gave way and wrote to Caligula, urging him in Josephus' words, not to drive so many 10,000 of these men to distraction that if he were to slay these men he would be publicly cursed for all future ages. That's an amazing passage that I never read before and it, it uh, they knew they were powerless against the emperor but they knew that they didn't have but they knew that there was a way to exert their power nonviolently in the first century. That was an amazing passage for me to read nor was this a unique episode. Okay, I'm gonna move ahead just because of time. Of these many episodes, one stands out for its theological audacity. It was recorded by the Jewish historian Shlomo Vindverga in the 15th and 16th centuries and concerns the Spanish expulsion. So my friends, this is after 1492 when the Jews had to run for their lives from Spain. One of the boats was invested with the plague and the captain of the boat put the passengers ashore at some uninhabited place. There was one Jew among them who struggled on a foot together with his wife and two children. The wife grew faint and died. The husband carried his children along until both he and they fainted from hunger. When he regained consciousness, he found that his two children had died. In great grief, he rose to his feet and said, O Lord of all the universe, you are doing a great deal that I might even desert my faith. But know you of a certainty that even against the will of heaven, a Jew I am and a Jew I shall remain. And neither that which you have brought upon me nor that which you may yet bring upon me will be of any avail. Rabbi Sachs continues, one is awestruck by such faith, such obstinate faith. Almost certainly it was this idea that lies behind a famous Talmudic passage about the giving of the Torah. I'm not going to read this part in the interest of time. Um, Roni said, Rabbi, do you believe that the Jews were so strongly versus idolatry to set themselves apart? I cannot see other reasons. Roni, that's a great question, which I can't even begin to address now, but I think it's a really valid observation. Thank you. So I'm gonna go to to his conclusion. Uh, Well, the purpose of this story is to lead us into the Purim story, which just happened. And that's another thing that grabbed me about this. Um, And I'm gonna read, uh, the real test of faith came when God was hidden, not at Mount Sinai. Rabbi's quotation from the book of Esther is pointed and precise. Megillah Esther does not contain the name of God. The rabbi suggested that the name Esther is an allusion to the phrase Haster, astir et Panai. I will surely hide my faith. The book relates the first warrant for genocide against the Jewish people. That Jews remained Jews under such conditions was proof positive that they did indeed reaffirm the covenant. Obstinate in their disbelief during much of the biblical era, they became obstinate in their belief ever afterwards. Faced with God's presence, they disobeyed him. Confronted with God's absence, they stayed faithful. That is the paradox of the stiff-necked people. Not by accident does the main narrative of the book of Esther begin with the words, and Mordechai would not bow down. His refusal to make obeisance to Haman sets the story in motion. Mordecai too is obstinate, for there is one thing that is hard to do if you have a stiff neck, namely bow down. At times Jews found it hard to bow down to God, but they were certainly never willing to bow down to anything less. That is why alone of all the many peoples who have entered the arena of history, Jews, even in exile, dispersed and everywhere a minority, neither assimilated to the dominant culture or converted to the majority faith. Forgive them because they are a stiff-necked people, said Moses, because the time will come when that stubbornness will not be, be not a tragic failing, but a noble and defiant loyalty, and so it came to be. So just as I study ancient rabbis and commentators, I can study a wise wise sage from our own time and read his words and share them with you. I'm very, I thought that was just so masterful. I'd never thought about it that way before. That our stiff necks also become one of our virtues Oh, you're welcome. It doesn't make life easy. Because it means, and we know this about Jews. There's a famous Yiddish saying, it's hard to be a Jew, right? It means that we're not going quietly. And um, as a people, individuals make their decisions, get swept up by history. But those of us who decide or feel called or whatever the mystery of our life's path is to consider ourselves part of this covenantal entity the jews your neck has to be kind of stiff to do that in a way determined set ready ready to confront ready to meet Cynthia says it doesn't make life easy, but does make our collective psyche more comprehensible. Thanks for the insights. And Paul has an excellent word, steadfast. So I wanna conclude with a blessing for all of us. And Naomi said, that is powerful. It reminds me of when my children were starting to individuate and resist following the rules of living in a house with others and exert their will. I used to say, this is a positive quality You have to learn where to use it and where to confront. Good parenting, Naomi. I love your kids, by the way, she knows that. Um, Here's the blessing I wanna leave us with. May we all be blessed to embrace our steadfast, stiff-necked nature as Jews in the very most courageous, life-giving ways but may we also remember that if we do not have shabbat we will ossify our stiff neck will harden and so i want to bless us all with the balance of releasing to the flow of life so that we can be restored and then regroup and meet the world again with this incredible perseverance that's one of the most beautiful qualities of being a Jew. And so may it be.